right, this is Gary Parrish again from CBSSports.com, and it's now Monday, June 8th, and this is the Ion College Basketball Podcast, because why wouldn't you be listening to a college basketball podcast in June? Matt Norlander and uh, Sam Pacini are here with me, and the big news in recent days beyond Norlander battling kidney stones was that North Carolina released its notice of allegations from the NCAA, 59 pages, five level one charges, including a lack of institutional control. Norlander, before we get too far, can you, A, update us on your kidney stone status, and B, to the best of your abilities, explain to folks what UNC is dealing with here. And you can take those in either order. All right, I'm going to say it feels so amazing to be able to say it feels amazing. I'll I'll save the kidney stones to the end of the podcast. But, yeah, I thought I was dying. Uh, In many ways, I was. The Carolina stuff, all right, so it's been a few days since this all came down. Uh, just us knowing what the NCAA has hit UNC with, generally speaking. Um, I had some stuff on it, you had some stuff on it, and Sam was scouting some Serbian center that's going to be picked 52nd overall. Yeah, so. yeah I was watching Arturis Guditis. <laughs> nice. So, uh, here were my takeaways from it, generally speaking. Um, I was surprised that there wasn't so much... Uh, Fingering out of the basketball coaches, the staff, the football, we didn't have a lot of that. We had a lot of women's basketball. I thought we'd certainly get more in the reports, uh, whether it was former staff members or, or just you know holding the teams more accountable. That's not what's happened, and I think Parrish is going to touch on uh, an interesting thing that our colleague Dennis Dodd picked up on uh, in terms of the allegations overall. The other thing I I realized. I could be wrong, but you know, when you look at what Bubba Cunningham has said, the athletic director at UNC, what he's told his coaches, what he told the media, when you look at how the NCAA is handling this, I didn't think this was the case two months ago, but now, to me, it's hard to see how this thing picks up enough speed. And if you're Carolina, I think you do this intentionally. I mean, Cunningham said that they have a 90-day window to respond formally and fight any of the allegations. Um, they should take every minute to they make They should it. absolutely take every possible minute they can to delay it out because I just don't see how this thing is resolved before the end of next season. And obviously Carolina is going to be a top three preseason team going into it. So whereas I think, I think most people thought that this was going to come down between July and December-ish. I, I'm, I'm now seeing like, at absolute best, like next May, at best. And even if it, like, even if it could come down early, I just fun. My understanding is that the NCAA would not ban a, a North Carolina team right in the middle of the season from the 2016 postseason. Like, I know we've seen schools do that before to themselves. Syracuse being the most obvious recent example. But the NCAA, I'm told, would not do that. Like. Announced in February, oh, by the way, you're not playing in next month's NCAA tournament. And beyond that, I've been told, uh, matter-of-factly, North Carolina will not do that. Not to this particular team, not to this particular roster. And so uh, North Carolina is going to be in the 2016 NCAA tournament one way or another. And then, you know, 17, who knows? Uh, as far as um, vacated you know, championships, who knows? Scholarship losses, who knows? It was um, very... Uh, I don't want to say vague, but like you said, they didn't really uh, point anything directly at Roy Williams or anybody who uh, is is a part of Roy Williams' staff. And I don't know um, that people will 
um, accept that as proof of innocence of, on Roy's behalf, nor should they, I, I don't believe. Um, but, and this is the point I tried to make in a column, and Sam, you, uh, you know, correct me if, if you think I'm reading it the wrong way. These coaches all, like, really enjoy the idea of plausible deniability. Like, uh, it, it, is, it is nonsensical um, to most people to believe that John Calipari, A, didn't know Marcus Camby was on the take when he was walking around in like $100,000 worth of jewelry, or, or B, that his star point guard at Memphis would travel out of state to take the SAT and he wouldn't have any idea about what was going on. Like most people don't, don't, uh, don't, don't buy that, frankly. Again, nor should they. Um, but John Calipari, and Kentucky fans use this all the time, can forever say, hey, you can, you can focus on a vacated Final Four at UMass or Memphis if you want to. You can, you know, whatever you want to, but you'll never be able to say that I've been directly tied to a major violation because I have never been directly tied to a major violation. They really enjoy saying that. And what we now know is that Roy Williams is going to be able to continue to say that. He will forever yeah. be able to, to, to frame this as, Clearly, some stuff went on. We didn't, you know, we we were, you know, we let go. Uh, we're embarrassed. We're doing everything we can to fix it. But don't ever say that I was orchestrating this or that I had a hand in it because even the NCAA never suggested as much. Again, I, I don't buy that. You'd have to be incredibly naive to buy that mm-hmm. something like this could go on and the head coach wouldn't have some either either he knows or he's in t- going way out of his way not to know. Uh, yeah. But but Roy Williams can can look in the mirror and say that, and uh, you know from my perspective that's a win for Roy Williams. What do you what do you make of that, Sam? Yeah, no, I totally agree. I think that uh, what is it? His name appeared once yes. in like the sixty pages or whatever. Um, so yeah, that's a win. Uh, anytime that uh, you can get this plausible deniability that Gary's talking about is just uh, just the icing on the cake for you whenever you're dealing with this allegation kind of business. Uh, you know, they are, they already have figured out that they're going to give Roy Williams a contract extension. Right. He's going to be there for the long haul. Like this is totally fine. His legacy is going to live on. Um, it doesn't seem like they're going to get national title stripped either, which is another thing. I mean, it, I didn't really see any reason, uh, in that document that would say, yeah, they're going to get, uh, what, what year was the Rashad McCants thing? Oh, five. Uh, yeah. It doesn't seem like that's going to get stripped. Does it? I, I, uh, I think it's impossible to can't say. say uh, I can't say for certain. See, this is why this is intriguing to me because I st- – all right. So this is, in my opinion, the biggest case since Miami and in many ways bigger than Miami. Um, and right now I just I, – I can't read the tea leaves all that well because for a good long while – first of all, the Syracuse thing came out. Everyone's like, well, just wait till what the NCAA does to UNC. And now there's a little bit of – hesitation given what the notice of allegations include the fact that you know women's basketball really was pointed out and 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 put under a harsh light more than any other program and so i i don't know uh i'm not ready to say they won't lose a banner i still think that is possible um given what's happened here there there are going to be harsh punishments but this thing is so tangled in itself uh, in terms of the athletes that got 
you know, preferential treatment to getting into these classes if they absolutely needed it in order to remain eligible. But when did that happen? With which teams? How often? And then how do you possibly punish these programs? It's it's basically an impossible task. And if the NCAA does not hit um, the football and men's basketball programs with at least some respectable quote unquote punishments. I, it'll be just mocked beyond belief with all this. And we've got such a long way to go. You know, Bubba Cunningham saying we're at quote-unquote halftime here. I don't know what to expect. It's also a weird situation because the NCAA has moved into a new era of tougher uh, punishments and governance structure. But all of this stuff happened before that was voted in. So it's getting grandfathered in essentially where, you know, on a pro- podcast a couple of months ago, guys, we – uh we kind of were <laughs> joking in a gas that Syracuse essentially uh, bargained its way to, to keep its title and its most recent Final Four and all that stuff. Carolina hasn't done that, but it basically will get its best option of the least punishable route here by nature of the fact that the NCAA doesn't want to completely screw over the university and say, no, everything that we've got here, it's going to be under much stricter and harsher punishments. It's not going to receive that. So I think inevitably uh, we're heading toward a, uh, an outcome here where the school's going to get hit, but I just don't see how people will be satisfied. Um, I think the notice of allegations told us all we need to know in regard to that. I still think a banner could come down. I'm so, not saying that that's the likely outcome now. Whereas, from my perspective, guys, six months ago, that that seemed much more likely than we have now. But um, GP, I, I did want to hit on this real quick, and I think this is a huge element of the case. The way that they framed it, mm-hmm. the way that they framed the notice of allegations, okay? Uh, it's not something – I did not pick up on it right away. It was not blatantly obvious but there's a there's a way that the NCAA went about this, and I guess it's really the only way they could have done this to even try and pin anything on UNC. Yeah, what was interesting, and Dennis Dodd, our colleague, actually pointed it out, is um, forever this has been considered an academic fraud case. That's what people. That's the way it's referred to. Like if you just Google North Carolina and academic fraud, you get like a million returns. Um, the NCAA didn't really use the term academic fraud at all. In fact, the word I believe academic fraud like that phrase, is only in the Notice of Allegations one time in 59 pages. And um, in, instead, this is basically an impermissible benefits uh, case. And, I mean, who knows? I mean, we're connecting some dots here. But one of the things Dennis Dobb pointed out is, and I, I think it makes some sense, is that you know the NCAA is um, you know, facing lawsuits from former North Carolina student-athletes um, basically saying that um, the NCAA contributed to academic fraud or didn't do enough to prevent academic fraud, that basically the education they received in Chapel Hill um, wasn't what it was supposed to be. And, and regardless of whether any of these lawsuits will have merit or not, um, the NCAA is going to have to defend itself against allegations of academic fraud. And so in this NCAA case, they have uh, essentially avoided it all together. And what Dodd suggested is that it's a legal maneuver to prevent the NCAA in its own case from having to define and debate academic fraud with North Carolina because theoretically that, you know, that could be used against them in some form in these in these legal cases uh, or in these lawsuits. And so I thought that was interesting that 
forever. Like literally for years, we've thought this was going to be an academic fraud case. And um, it, it's just not. It's not, you know, it, it is still about the idea of academic fraud, but uh, that word is not going to be thrown around too much, um, you know, when the NCAA um, meets with North Carolina uh, face-to-face. I think that's creative, <laughs> some good lawyering, but basically they've said that because players at all levels at UNC that were able to get into these classes, uh, it was an impermissible benefit because they had advisors who essentially made sure that if they needed to get into a paper class in the AFAM uh, department, they got in. And that's now at the crux of the NCAA's case against the university. And it's a strong one. I mean, given, listen, the report is, is it's well meted out. And the emails uh, that they, that they were able to recover are, you know, damning to say the least. So uh, I, yeah, I, I thought that was a, uh, Really intriguing how they, they have to go that way. And I guess it's the only way they can go because forever the, – the problem with the Carolina thing for so long was that you know the NCAA, I would say to its benefit in years past, has basically sidestepped a lot of academic fraud stuff because if non-athletes were getting uh, benefits of phony courses and, and, and you know inflated grades or whatnot, they needed some sort of – proof to be able to say okay here's here's specifically why you know this team's uh this school this program was able to benefit with its athletes well it's hard to do that when you've got non-athletic players doing the same exact thing so it's hard to punish uh but in this case they do have stuff on file uh emails correspondence that that are really you know helping to build the case but again more than any other spot uh, it is the women's basketball program that uh, looks to be under the the biggest hammer coming. Yeah, just to bottom line it, um, regardless of what the punishment actually ends up being, I mean, this is exactly what people have forever thought it was. I mean, it it is athletes being put into paper classes and you know to remain eligible to compete, um, you know, at the Division One level. I mean, it is the the folks who were pointing at this years ago and saying, hey, this is crazy what's been going on at North Carolina for years and years and years, um, they were all right. It is exactly as it seems. Now we get to see what the NCAA does about it. And um, again, um, having talked to you know everybody I know I can talk to about it and reading what other people have um, surmised, there's just, uh, there's no, there's no real way to to accurately or, or, or at least um, intelligently try to project or predict what the NCAA is going to do here. We just do not know. We'll see uh, again probably sometime uh, in 2016. Let's switch gears. Um, mentioned John Calipari earlier, and he made some interesting radio appearances last week. Got into it with Dan Patrick, then got into it with Colin Coward about two different things. But I thought the Patrick one was more interesting because Dan um, basically asked him if he thought – the platoon system um, actually hurt Kentucky last year and whether the team could have been better, you know, having picked seven or eight guys and just playing a normal rotation, even if it meant burying uh, future pros on his bench. And Cal got real defensive about it. And, um, you know, on one hand you go, well, it's probably always preferable to play your best players the most minutes. On the other hand, you go, they went 38 and one and we're ranked number one in the country every week of the season to the last week of the season. So Sam, where do you fall on that? Like, is it a reasonable thing to suggest 
John Calipari mismanaged that roster, even though, again, they started 38-0? Um, I don't know. His comment was something like uh, he would rather uh, have like all seven of his guys go in the draft than win the national title, right? He said something like that. Well, that's ridiculous. It's a ridiculous um, thing to say. I think he just says that because... <laughs> I don't, it's a recruiting tactic. It's not, it's not even a, that I think it's a ridiculous thing to say. Um, I, I think that it's helpful in recruiting because I think that recruits at that high of a level, uh, they're only going to be there a year. I think that they do want to win a national title. But, you know, their future and their lives are a little bit more important than that at that point. So I, I don't really think it's a crazy thing to say, honestly. Um, as far as whether or not he mismanaged the roster... Let me rephrase then. Not, not, cra- not a crazy thing to say because there's probably a purpose to it, but mm-hmm. nobody believes you. It, it's not... You can't genuinely prefer to have seven guys drafted as opposed to win a national championship. Like, I don't... I, I think not winning this national championship will haunt John forever. If they only get six dudes drafted, I don't think that'll keep him up at night forever. So I just... like it's, There's probably a purpose to it, but like, come on, man. Nobody believes that. That's yeah, no, yeah, I mean, I think that he might believe it in his own head. I think he believes whatever he's saying in his own head at the, the given time that he speaks it. Uh, I think that he would make an argument to you that uh, he cares more about his kid's future than winning a national title and his own legacy. Whether or not that's true, I don't, I don't know. I'm not going to get into that. Whether or not he mismanaged this roster, uh, it's, it's up for debate. You know, He probably didn't play Carl Towns enough, but then again, Carl Towns... Average six fouls per 40 minutes this year. So did he really not play him enough? Or did Carl uh, just continue to get into foul trouble? Did did Aaron Harrison continue to play past the point where he was useful whenever they probably could have been running two-point guard lineups with Tyler Eulis and uh, Andrew Harrison a lot of the time? Did Devin Booker play enough? You know, there are all those little questions you could ask, but it's one of those things where this team was so successful doing it and they found a way to keep a team with nine five-star recruits plus Willie Cauley-Stein happy by doing it the way that they did it. And that takes a lot from five-star recruits who have been there, been the absolute best players on teams all throughout their lives to get them to buy in and take 20 minutes a game, 25 minutes a game. That takes a lot. So I think that most of what Calipari was doing was mostly managing egos, and I think that Generally, he did a great job at that. Yeah, like I, that's sort of my bottom line. Is like you took a, a uniquely talented and deep roster, and you kept the players and the parents happy from November to April, and you started thirty-eight and zero. And then yeah. it, it's not like they fell apart in the NCAA tournament and lost to, with all due respect, UAB. Like they they lost to another great team in a forty-minute yeah. basketball game. So like uh, Norlander, like I. I, I, again, uh, you can argue this kid should have played more minutes. This kid should have played more minutes to maximize whatever. But, I mean, we're nitpicking at this point, right? Nitpicking a little bit. Um, man, Cal's got this just odd desire to want to keep his name and that team in the media almost every week of the year. Uh, it's it's almost as if the fact that the draft is coming up isn't enough. He's got to go on and stir it up. Uh, I was, uh, you know, not surprised by his defense of this. I would say overall what he did was a success, but I would say there is nuance to this in that um, he essentially, uh, as we predicted, I mean, he abandoned the concept of the platoon uh, early and often after they got out of non-conference play. Um, I couldn't, you couldn't say that he should not have played some of the players that he did play because that that was necessary. In fact. His, one of his primary defenses was, was I not supposed to play Tyler Ulis? Well, that's going to end up, 
you know, becoming extra. One, Ulyss was awesome last year, so he should have played Ulyss. Maybe that's a straw man in general, but, you know, given that he saw all that playing time this past year, that'll be inevitably and invariably valuable next year because Ulyss uh, will be tremendously important to Kentucky's team. Um, he also, his, you know, acquiesce, you know, him acquiescing to not doing this again, well, he's not necessarily going to be in a situation like this again to his own admission because he wasn't expecting to have that many guys back. um, And he put himself into a a situation that no coach has essentially ever been in. And that's to have, you know, 10 possible future NBA players on your roster. So he gave it a go with what they had. That's fine. Uh, I would say it was a success. I mean, you lose to a Wisconsin team that, you know, made two straight final fours, uh, had the player of the year, had you know two or three future NBA players on it. Period. Um, no real shame in that. Uh, but it's just it's also just Cal being Cal, um, and he's not afraid to mix it up with anyone. And you know he has a jocular relationship with Patrick as it is. So I think there was a little bit of that going on as well. And then it kind of got really blown up uh, from what it was. But overall, my my other takeaway is just like Cal just has this obsession with keeping his team in the freaking headlines like every week of the year i get fatigued from it like don't get me wrong i enjoy kentucky i like the fact that they give us something to think and write and talk about a lot but um take a vacation dude well some of it is um just everything he says becomes a headline like you know like he's not the only college basketball coach out there doing interviews this time of the year but like everything he says um like like makes a national headline and so um, you know, like, uh, I don't know. I've, I've, I've heard other college basketball coaches talk over the past month, but what they say doesn't register. And it, it, it just sort of underlines to me, um, he, he's, he's a larger than life figure in college basketball. Like he is an, he is, uh, arguably, you know, right there with Mike Krzyzewski, if not bigger than Mike Krzyzewski, as weird as that might sound in terms of, uh, college basketball figures. And so, um, I, I don't know that he's working any more or less than than anybody else. It's just everything that comes out of his mouth, um, you know, resonates on some level. A because it's John Calipari. B because it, he's the Kentucky basketball coach. Um, speaking of uh, Kentucky and draft picks and all of that stuff, uh, you know, we're less than a month from the NBA draft now. Who knows how many Kentucky guys will get picked, but. Uh, it seems uh, for certain at this point, Carl Anthony Towns is going to go in the top two. I saw Jonathan Gavoni from Draft Express uh, tweeting about a recent Towns um, workout and was just blown away, blown away by the skill set, blown away by uh, watching him do all these things that maybe we didn't see him consistently do at Kentucky. Um I've always been an Okafor guy. Sam, you've been working on draft stuff basically every day. Um, where are we on that? Is it is it going to be Carl Anthony Towns, number one, or is that still up for debate at all? Well, I think it's still up for debate because everything you hear out of Minnesota is that Minnesota's like, uh, or Flip Saunders is like Jaleel Okafor more all year. Um, recently, over the last you know day or two, that seems to have, turned a little bit it seems like we're starting to go in the other direction that Carl Towns is going to be the pick and anyone that can look at that roster even can tell you hey like this team needs Carl Towns a lot more than it needs Jalil Okafor just what they run they run like a power wing uh post game 
where you're going to have both Okafor in the post and you're going to have guys like Shabazz Muhammad and uh, Andrew Wiggins in the post. That doesn't really make sense. Uh, you know, Carl Towns just kind of profiles better as a pick and roll guy because he can shoot out to, I would say he can shoot out to 20 feet consistently right now, but not really uh, out to, you know, the NBA three point line yet, even though you saw that. I'm sure that everyone saw that vine of him just like taking set threes like it was nothing and just dropping them. Um, I, I wouldn't read too much into a uh, one-on-zero workout personally, but that's just me. Um, I think that that guy should be the pick. They were the worst defensive team at the rim last year in the entire NBA. He provides a little bit more rim protection. Uh, he provides a little bit more defensive upside generally. Uh, and, and like I said, it seems like we're trending in that direction right now, uh, despite Flip's uh, apparent apparent like of Julio Okafor throughout the entire season. He's he's the uh, father, son, and the Holy Spirit, right? I mean, he's 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 got all the power. Not sure. Like, he's he'll have the final say. Is he coach, GM, and president? I don't know that he's president, but he'll okay. have the final say on this pick. I would say. Okay. So uh, it's interesting. Uh, the fact that it is still a debate. Um, I think that they're even prospects overall. It's just for what the Minnesota Timberwolves have, I think that Towns makes more sense because I think that you're going to want more of a spacing option on offense with Andrew Wiggins already there and with uh, Ricky Rubio playing point guard since you've committed to him, committed to him $50 million earlier this year. No, Leonard, so, let, yeah, let me, yeah. I don't mean to interrupt. Let me ask you this. Um, Given that we've just gone through a playoffs where we've seen um, Hacka Jordan and Hacka Dwight and, you know, even last night uh, in small spurts, you know, Hacka Tristan Thompson, um, does Jaws inability to shoot free throws well at the collegiate level, should that be something that's considered when you're drafting at the top? I wonder how much it is. Uh, it, it, it should be. I've, I've never done the... Uh... The research on this but there's there's certainly when there's that much disparity between what is, what is towns i'm i'm guessing here like 73 percent, 74 percent from the line that's my Pretty guess sure he was higher than that i want to say he was like almost 80 that's you know that is discernible and certainly uh yeah he was 81 81 my gosh that's really good um that is i, I that should be taken more seriously uh especially in the macro um you're talking about a difference of i mean <laughs> over the course of a season think about how many free throws both those guys could end up shooting and how much more you could get from towns in terms of overall value so yeah gp i think that should be taken into account that's basically i like okafor better than towns still but that is and if you told me okafor was even a 68, 69% foul shooter, I would have no second thoughts. I would go Okafor over Towns. But it's such a liability for him still at this point. Um, can he correct it to a certain degree? Who knows? I think when it comes to foul shooting, and Sam can maybe talk more um, eloquently about this, I, I still think uh, a lot of NBA teams don't take it as seriously or think that it's more fixable. Uh, like it's just like a minor problem when, in my opinion, you know, good foul shooting means a lot. And if you're a team that shoots well from the free throw line in general, uh, that should have some sort of impact on, on decisions. But 
I don't know if that'll be something Minnesota considers. Uh, I would personally. I would take a lot of stock into it. I think it's as critical as you know how good you might think his footwork is overall. Because if Okafor is going to be sent to the line 18 times in a game and he's going to make seven shots and Towns is going to do the same and he's going to sink 15. That means a lot. That's eight points. I would say this um, in terms of the Towns Okafor debate. Like, a reasonable people can disagree on who the better prospect is. Like, at one point in time, I thought it was crazy to anybody think that anybody would think Okafor wasn't the best prospect in the, you know, uh, you know eligible for the 2015 NBA draft. Now, I, I think most people agree it's not crazy to think Towns could be. But if I'm Minnesota, uh, there's no way I make a pick based on style if it, uh, uh, unless that guy also happened to be the guy I assume I believe is the is the better prospect. In other words, if Minnesota grades Okafor out ahead of Towns, I wouldn't then take Towns just because he might be a better fit with our current roster. Like I I fundamentally hate the idea of um, of drafting for need or style. Uh, always mm. at, the, at the top, take the best player that you start drafting for need or style at the top and taking inferior prospects. You, you end up regretting that. Yeah. And I, I guess my thing for me is that I consider them pretty equal prospects overall. Uh, if I didn't, if I considered Okafor a better prospect, I probably would say, yeah, just take Okafor. That's what I mean. But, right. Yeah. I think they're even prospects. So I would probably say that, uh, you know, take the guy that you think fits what you guys should be doing in the future better. Um, the second thing I would note to Matt's point is that I do think Okafor's free throw shooting is a little bit projectable, uh, for improvement because if you look at him, the stroke isn't bad. It's, right. That's the weird thing about the game is that it's not hideous yeah. and he, he's almost bizarrely bad at it. It's because of his hands. His hands are massive. Uh, and it seems like he doesn't get great rotation on the ball because of that. Um, my guess is that he ends up somewhere in the 60, 60s percent range uh, by the time he's in year three. And I think at that point, you're okay. You can't really, uh, you can't really hack him at that point. So I would probably say that that doesn't become a factor. I mean, it's great that Towns is a uh, terrific free throw shooter, and that's a bonus in his cap. Uh, but if you think that you can get Okafor, if you're a team and you think you can get Okafor up to 60%, or uh, 60 to 65%. I don't necessarily know that it's a massive negative. Plus, you have to consider the fact that uh, the hacka thing seems short for this world in the NBA. So I would be surprised if that lasted past next year. If you're going to try and legislate it out? I mean, I don't know how you do that, but yeah. Well, they're uh, going to say that away from the ball fouls are uh, basically... Yeah. Yeah, just yeah, or not flakes, but intentionals where you get two shots from the ball. That should be interesting. Um, what about the uh, Russell versus Moutier? I mean, you've got three, four, uh, in terms of mock draft, three Russell to Philly and then Moutier to the Knicks at four. I definitely, I mean, I I am so in love with D'Angelo Russell's game. I think he is, I think he's going to be a very, very good NBA point guard for a decade. I just, I love his feel. I love his style. I can totally see uh, him being an all-star three, four years from now. Is um, is there a big gap? Like, Moutier got, gets the benefit, if you want to call it that, of going overseas and, and doing all that. But um, He was very good to overseas. Me, it seems like there's a bigger gap now between Russell and Moutier than there was a month ago. Is that accurate? Um. I think that that's 
more out of sight, out of mind. I mean, D'Angelo's been to the Combine. Uh, we've seen these workout videos from him uh, over the weekend. I want to say maybe Friday. Uh, Emmanuel Moody, I worked out for the Lakers or he worked out in L.A. or something like that. Um, he's, he's starting to get back into the into the uh, stratosphere, into the atmosphere of uh, people back into the top of their minds. So that's good. Um, I think that you'll start to hear more about him. And I, I like him a little bit more. I, I like his feel in the pick, pick and roll a little bit more. Uh, his athleticism, I think, gives him a little bit higher of an upside on defense. He's just as long. Uh, it, I would probably take Moutier over Russell for those reasons, especially if I was uh, the 76ers because that kind of guy, the kind of guy that you can trust in the pick and roll, that'll help your big men like uh, Joel Embiid and Nerlens Noel develop. So I would probably go that route, but you know, it's a, it's a tough call. So they're pretty, again, those two are pretty much even to me. Switching gears. Um, I've just tweeted, like, as we're doing this podcast live, Murray State, Steve Prohm is going to be the next head coach at Iowa State. Oh my God. Your thoughts, <laughs> Norlander? Well, um, okay. I, I literally, I've tweeted it closed and I did not, uh, this is, this is cool because we're getting this as we're recording it. My thoughts are that's an interesting hire. Um, I think it's a solid hire. I wouldn't say it's an amazing hire. They interviewed GP uh, before I kind of continue. Do you know how many people they technically interviewed? Or, or Five. Um, it was Prom, um, Brad Underwood, Bryce Drew, TJ Otzelberger, and Lavelle Moten. Okay. Uh, you know, I would have. I would have thought. TJ and Bryce were, if you had told me before, like, guess, I would have said Bryce won, then TJ. Uh, but Prone gets it. Um, listen, he's done really good things at Murray State. Um, that is super intriguing to me. Uh, I'm very eager to see how that comes about. Um, yeah, I'm, I got no issues with it. Uh, I think I would have gone... Bryce over Prome, but I mean, you know, you're kind of, you know, you're picking here or there, I guess. Um, what are your guys' thoughts? I Listen, it's fine. Um, you know, I, I think TJ made a lot of sense for a lot of reasons. You know, most notably, he's the only um, one of the group who has um, ever recruited at the high major level successfully. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, for those reasons, given that they're going to have I think seven scholarships to fill after next year. Like he's, he's probably the guy best equipped to, to fill those scholarships. Um, but like, you know, I, I also understand the hesitation that uh, Iowa state might've had with handing a top 10 roster to a, to somebody who's never been a head coach. And I, I think that ultimately is what um, worked against TJ in this, in this particular situation. Um, you know, I, Brad Underwood would have made a lot of sense because he can obviously coach and you're handing him a ready built team. You wonder uh, if his age is something. And not that maybe. it should. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, maybe. Is it the is the Kansas State thing for real with Underwood too? Oh, I I think he he will. Have, I, I, if Kansas State like, were to make a change, could, would would Brad be the next head coach of Kansas State? I could see that certainly. Yeah, um, yeah, I've I've read that that's a thing. Where yeah. He, no, I think it's more than a thing. I, I think yeah. Um, yeah. So, um, and then with Bryce, like, listen, I got you know, I got. Any of them. I, I don't think they could have made a And Lavelle, you know, as well. I, I don't think they could have made a bad choice here. Um, you know, uh, so, you know, Steve Prohm is, is walking into a great situation. I mean, he's got a ready-made 
um, ready-made team. So we'll uh, we'll see. Well, listen, I got to go write a story. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? We go. Uh, so uh, let me handle this, and uh, you guys get on with your Mondays. And remember, you can subscribe to the Ion College Basketball Podcast on iTunes. It's the quickest way to get your hands on the latest edition. So um, make sure to do that, and uh, we will talk again at some point. Uh, I promise. Take care.